And the key component in that is the passing of the baton from one teammate to the next. And how important it is that the baton is passed properly, that it's not fumbled, that it's not mishandled, that it's not dropped, and it can drastically change the outcome of the race, no matter how fast you run or how well you run, if you don't pass the baton properly. And so we want to talk about that in this series as it relates to three main characters from Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, grandfather, son, and grandson. And we want to look at their stories in the weeks and months to come and how they interreact and how one plays off the other and the things that they're passing off generationally, the things that they see in one another, the things they observe. And at times, we're going to discover, like we did last week, that Abraham exhibited mind-boggling faith. It was just astounding, the things he said yes to for God. And he showed us in the clearest of terms how to live a life that is a God-honoring life, a life of faith, a life of surrender. But other times we're going to discover with these folks that they will fail in spectacular fashion. And sadly, they'll be pushed, passing on those bad examples as well. And the question I want to ask all through this series that I remind you of today is, what am I passing on? What am I passing on? Let's pray as we do that. Father, we look to your word now. We invite you to speak to us as only you can. And so that just really involves us saying yes. I want to hear, but not just hear. I want you to mold me and shape me. And we would be, in beginning with me, but for each of us, I would pray that we'd be deeply open to that. So speak now, Father, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, uh, I came across the title of this book that I want us to use as the kind of the idea behind this message and look at the passage in light of this. And the book was this, is the grass always greener on the other side of the septic tank? Is the grass always greener on the other side of the septic tank? And so if you have your uh, device, your, your tablet or your phone or your hard copy of the book, turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And it's sort of those beginning stages as we see these characters in their story. Genesis chapter 13. If you'll recall from last week in Genesis chapter 12 as we launched, Abram, who later gets a name change to Abraham, is told by God, leave your home, leave parts of your family, and go to a land where I will show you. You're never going to see those people you leave behind again. There is no text messages. There is no email. There is no phones. And I want you to just start walking in this direction, and I'll show you where to go. This is something they didn't do back then. Incredibly dangerous. And it flies in the face of the two primary values of their life and their culture after God. God was called to be first in their life, and this is the message we consistently see all through Scripture. But after that, for them, the two primary values were the land and their family. 
And so God is saying, I want you to do something that flies in the face of something you've always thought and been taught and adhered to. And so Abraham exhibits mind-boggling faith, and he does it. And as God calls him to do this, he also gives him a mind-boggling, incredible promise. Because he says to him, I will make you into a great nation. And from that, all the peoples of the earth, including us to this day, will be blessed. Now, the thing is, is Abraham is 75 years old when God does this in his life. When many people are told by the culture, either directly or indirectly, this is at the point in your life when you should go into cruise control, cruise control mode and just kind of coast until you die. And God says, no, I've got something great for you at age 75. And whether you're 15 or 30 or 70 or 75, God has something he wants to do through your life. And Abraham says, yes. But you have to understand, he's 75, his wife is close in age, and they have no children. And so this is quite a promise in the day of no IVF or test tube babies. And Abraham has this huge extended family, and his nephew Lot and all of Lot's entourage tags along for the journey. And between them, they have vast amounts of livestock and several hundred people to support. And with all of this in mind, the journey has begun to a place where God will show them. And we begin reading in verse 5, and it says this. Now, Lot who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them where they stayed together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of, the, of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram says to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and, or, and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before us? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And so it's hard for us to understand here in Canada because we, we have so much water. They have extremely limited water resources the least resourced area of the entire world. And so pasture land is at a premium on the rather barren hills of that environment. And notice a couple of things with me right away as we start into this story. Notice how Abram moves to address conflict. This is cool. Rather than just pretending like it's no big deal, rather than just letting all the herdsmen fight one another and argue with one another, he goes to Lot, his younger nephew, and he says, let's figure out a way to deal with this. Let's not just hope it solves itself somehow. Let's address this conflict in a constructive way. And a lot of people are afraid to do that or are too lazy to do that. Or they just hope it's going to fix itself. And really, it never does, right? Abram is older than Lot. Abram is the head of this massive family. 
And in that culture, especially then, but even to a large extent today, especially in that part of the world, in that culture, in that day, it absolutely would have been within Abram's purview, and he would have been expected to just say, Lot, you're going to the right, or you're going to the left. And he would have dictated the terms because he was the oldest and the head of the family. And instead, Abram, in an incredibly selfless act, said to Lot, you go ahead and choose first. Now, Lot, the protocol would have been Lot saying, no way, not a chance. You're the oldest. You're the head of the family. You should choose first. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't hint at doing that. Instead, he jumps at the chance to choose first. First, beginning in verse 10, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered. That's relatively speaking. We wouldn't consider it well watered, but relatively speaking for them, it was. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. Sinning greatly. And so Lot has a look. He's had his scouts out. He knows what's going on. He's heard the rumors of what this place is like. He considers the land, and he picks the best place for himself because the grass was greener over there. They had rudimentary irrigation systems at that time, and water was scarce as it is there right now in that part of the world. But that area had more water, relatively speaking, than the other. And perhaps he had visions from their time when they were in Egypt of the good life like he'd seen over in Egypt. Egypt at that time in history was at the forefront in terms of a technological and artistic development. And so he looks and he sees the whole plain and he thinks about his choice. And he knows the reputation of the area that he's going to. And he chooses to go there. Now, I make this observation. Nowhere is it suggested in the text that before this major, major life decision, does he say, God, what would you have me do? As I read the story, and as you will read the story, and I encourage you to be reading the story, because we're going to be just picking parts of it, read the whole thing. Nowhere as we read the story do we see evidence of him doing this. And what we begin to notice as we read the story is in an increasing way, God occupies the fringe areas of Lot's life. And God becomes more and more of an afterthought for Lot. So can I ask you some really serious questions? How do you choose where you are going to end up in life? You know, the place you're going to live? If you're a university student, who your roommate's going to be or your roommates are going to be? Or if you're done school or whatever, what job you're going to try to go after? How do you decide where you're going to live? 
How do you decide, should I go into this business and give it a go or not? Do you make those kinds of choices? And only you can answer this. Do you make those kinds of choices solely or even primarily on convenience or for monetary reasons? I hear this so often. I'm doing this, and the reason at the heart of it is for money or because it's easier. And this is the driving rationale behind these choices. Or is it based on God-honoring principles, plain old wisdom, and really at the heart of it saying, first and foremost, God, what should I do? So some of you are thinking, Scott, are you suggesting that every decision I make, I should run it through God by God first? Absolutely. This is what scripture teaches. He's number one in our life. And we go to him first. So before you enter into that work environment, is it a good idea to ask God, is this where I should go? Absolutely. Before you say, this is how I'm going to choose to entertain myself. Are those good things to consult him on? Yes. When you start to bring around you those significant people in your life, those influencers in your life, the people that are going to shape your life, is it a good idea to say, God, is this someone I should allow to influence my life? What lessons are we passing on to those that look to us? How do you make those decisions? Well, Abraham is in dialogue with God, and he hears from God, and he follows him. And we always just assume it's going to be better over there, so we assume that's the place we should go. And frankly, maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not saying it isn't. Maybe it is. But do we stop to ask, as we're making these choices, what might I have to become if I go over there? Are there going to be required of me inappropriate sacrifices and inappropriate compromises that I'm going to have to be making to be over there? What's my motivation in this? And most importantly, who have I considered and consulted? So what Lot does is he moves to the east. And in the east, you'll see if you read the whole text, there's five cities on the Jordanian plain. And he chooses, without asking God, to pitch his tent just outside the city of Sodom, which of all the cities in that region and in the surrounding regions is by far the most wicked, evil place. It has the worst reputation, and it's a well-earned reputation. And so, a question like this, have you chosen to live and work in a Sodom-like environment. Should I be doing that, God? I think that's a good question to ask. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents 
and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. The thing, I, here again, I noticed a couple things. Here's what I noticed. God said nothing to Lot. As God increasingly becomes an afterthought to Lot, the less Lot hears from him. But God continues the dialogue and the direction with Abraham. And at this point in the text, he gives what I would call the third pep talk about the promise. We introduced this idea last week. There's this reoccurring pattern all through Scripture, through the different stories you read in the characters' lives. The three Ps, I'll call them, not original with me. There's a promise from God. God says, I'm going to do this. And then there's all kinds of promises that will come up. The evil one will come against you with spiritual attacks, or people will get in your face, or circumstances will go south, or whatever. And then there's provision. And it doesn't just progress in a linear fashion. It swirls around. There'll be promises and then problems and back to the promises. And this is what's going on here. The third time in a chapter and a half, God is saying, remember the promise. As you're on the journey, I said, I'll make you into a great nation. And two times in chapter 12, he says this, you're going to have all this land. This is now the third time. Don't get discouraged, Abe. I'm with you. And the promise is going to be fulfilled. Third time, the promise has been given to him. And so Abraham moves his tents about 35 kilometers south of, of, of Jerusalem to Hebron. And if you continue reading the story, a few years go by. And during this time, Lot has moved his family from the outskirts of Sodom right into the city. And we continue to make note of the progression in his life. It's continuing to move in a certain direction where he distances himself by his own choices more and more from God. Well, after a few years goes by, the five cities on the Jordanian plain have been, have been paying protection money to two of the kings north of them to look after them. They have to pay these guys off, and they say, we don't want to pay anymore, and they rebel. And so the two kings from the north come down, and they beat up on the five cities in the south, and they cart everybody off into captivity, including yours truly, Lot. Abraham hears about this. Somebody escapes, doesn't get captured, and you can read this story in detail in verses 11 to 24, and goes and tells Abraham, your, your nephew and his family and all their possessions are in captivity. And so Abraham gathers all his fighting men. He has 318 fighting men under his command, and they go to rescue Lot and his family. And he's successful. As he returns from this, Abraham has some encounters with people. And I want to take note of how he handles his involvement with them. One of the people he encounters back from rescuing Lot is a person named Melchizedek. Again, you can read this in the text. Melchizedek is a high priest of God. He is a priest that is a foreshadowing or a foretaste 
of what Jesus is going to be like. This is referenced in the book of Hebrews. And when he comes to this priest, the priest blesses God and blesses Abraham. And Abraham responds by tithing a tenth of everything he has to God. He has a second encounter. And the second encounter is with the king of Sodom, the guy that's in charge of the most hedonistic, wicked place in the entire region. And the king of Sodom says to him, hey, thanks for having my back. How about if I give you a finder's fee? I'll take all the people and enslave them all that you captured, and you can keep all the cash and the goods for yourself. Now, Abraham doesn't want to be beholden to this guy in any way. And so he says to him this, when God led me on this mission, because remember, Abraham is saying, God, should I do this or not? And when God led me on this mission, king of Sodom, I took an oath to accept nothing of yours except the food for my men to eat on the trail. And Lot and Abraham are this stark contrast in how to relate to people who are drastically disconnected from God. And there's three basic approaches that we can take. The first one is isolation. And some people try to follow this one. I know a number, or I've seen a number of people like this. They have as little to do with people what, that they would consider not in relationship with God. They have as little to do with them as they possibly can. They try to insulate themselves from them. They see them as a threat. They see them as people that will contaminate them in some way. And they have the sort of credo of us for and no more. And when I've been in Israel, you can go through Israel in different parts of the world, and you'll be walking in these incredibly desolate places, and there'll be caves, and there'll be people living in those caves on purpose. Monks and aesthetics and stuff like that, saying, this is how I get close to God, by shutting myself off completely from people. And I emerge like once a week for an hour or something like that. When I think about the life of Jesus that you can read about in the four biographies of his life, in the first four books of the New Testament, this was not his path. It's absolutely true that there were significant chunks of time where Jesus would have alone time with his father. At one point, he spent 40 days with just him and God. And I think it could be uh, argued that every day he would go off by himself because he had this really healthy spiritual habit of every day going apart, spending some time with his father, being spiritually nourished, and being directed. What should I do today, God? I'm in. Whatever you want me to do, I'm in. And so having said all that, equally true is he was engaged with the people of the culture. He did life with them, and he was engaged with the people of the culture. So I would argue this ongoing, long-term isolation where they might contaminate me is not the path to take. The second one is the path that Lot took, and that's identification. Um, I'm going to let them know that I'm with them. I'm going to live with them, and I'm going to totally do life with them, and I'm going for total immersion. This is the path of Lot. 
And it's not necessarily true that Lot shouldn't have gone to the Jordanian plain. Maybe he should have. Maybe he should have said, God, where, do, where should I go? And I think God would have let him. Maybe God would have let him there. I don't know. There's nothing wrong. Let me just say as a sidebar here, which you've heard me say very often, there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with being successful. But when we make it first in our life and the driving motivation of our life, we're heading for a crash and all kinds of trouble. He made these choices without consulting God, and from what we can see in the text, it would appear that he's doing it in an entirely self-centered way. What's best for me? And he initially chooses to live right outside the most corrupt and evil and deeply hedonistic environment that he could find. And you begin to notice the progression of the slippery slope in the decisions in his life. God is occupying the fringes of his life more and more. What were the results of these kinds of choices? And the choices kept coming, I would argue, just like this. What were some of the results? If you read the story, we've already referenced this. First of all, he's carted off by a rival king. He and all his family and all his possessions. And who knows what happened to him and his family while they were in possession, especially to the women. Probably horrific things. Later, if you keep reading the book of Genesis, you keep reading the story. We're told that when he's brought back to Sodom after he's rescued by Abraham, something happens later. And we're told that evil men from the city come to his door, pound on his door, and they say, there's some men from God in there with you. Bring them out so we can rape them. Now listen to how far Abraham has gotten off the rails. Because here's his response later on. He says, oh, no, no, don't do that. Take my daughters instead, and you can do anything you want with them. I just talk to the parents here for a second, and especially the dads, because Lot was a dad. What kind of a coward says that? What kind of a dad says something like that? How could a guy that had that kind of spiritual undergirding, that kind of spiritual heritage, the kinds of things that he had seen God do, how did he come from that environment to doing something despicable like this. Well, I'll tell you how it happens. It comes through a series of choices, of small compromises, of cumulative compromises on principle, of saying, God, you're in my life, but you're kind of on the outside there a little bit. Now, God steps in despite his cowardness and miraculously saves his daughters so they're not harmed. But they learn something from their dad that day. They don't matter to him. Later, as you keep reading his story, his wife, again, who's been watching him in action, openly defies God and it costs her her life. And then a little later in the story... His daughters following the generational example of dad when it comes to sex, get him drunk and commit incest with him in order to try and have a child. Because they've learned from dad that they don't matter 
And absolutely nothing is out of bounds in life, no matter how horrible and evil and despicable it is. Now somebody says, well, God, I could never do something like that. Probably, and I hope so. But I want you to think with me for a second about Lot. Think about where he began. And think about how over a period of years, he made a series of choices. And where he ended up. And I ask you a very serious question. Where might the choices that you're making right now eventually lead you? Where you go, ah, I know this is what God says. I know what his best interests are for me. and He has them in mind, but ah, I'm just going to do it anyway. It'll be no big deal. So I'm going to compromise there. And then I'm going to minimize here. And I'm going to take this principle and rough it up a little bit and only do part of it. And I'm doing all of these things for the sake of more money, or because it's convenient, or for whatever. And what happens is, and we're beginning to see this in the lives of these individuals, this series of generational sins that begin to get passed down through the generations that need to be broken in Jesus' name, and they can only be broken in Jesus' name when people humble themselves, repent of their sin, cry out for help, and Jesus comes in and cleanses them and changes the direction of their life. Lot's approach was making difference, was making uh, choices that aligned with no discernible difference between himself and people that were far from God. Identification that leaves little or no room for differentiation. And when people look at us and they see no difference, which is really the way most people in North America see the church now, if you look at all the surveys, People should be able to look at us and see something clearly different about how we do life, about the choices we make. That there's, you know, they might even say there's something kind of weird about that person because it's pretty clear that God's first in their life, that their life reflects his plans, that they are radically loving people, that they're humble people, that not only are they forgiven, but they are forgiving. And when we don't come across that way, it's time to ask some hard questions. The third one, the last one, is involvement without compromise. I'm talking about inappropriate compromise here. And this is what Abraham shows us in chapter 14. He mixes it up with life. He lives in the land of Canaan. He doesn't go and run and hide in a cave somewhere. He gets involved with life. He gets involved with the king of Sodom as he's rescuing his nephew. But he does all of this without compromising any biblical principles or his relationship with God being first in his life. And he does it in a way that clearly shows he's different and that he follows the God of the Bible. It says in chapter 14, verse 22, 
Um, Sodom, the king of Sodom says, here, let me pay you off. Let me give you a finder's fee. Take all this cash. I'll enslave all the people. You take the money. And he says to him, I made a vow earlier. I've thought this through when I was asking God, should I go on this mission? And I'm not going to get intertwined with you like this, king of Solomon. And he knew his own heart. He knew, I'm going to be tempted to cash in when all that money comes and compromise in a way I know is not appropriate. And so he's making principled decisions before he gets into the situation. He's imagining some of the things that might come his way, and he's saying, I am going to make some decisions about that right now, before I'm there. And he's not obnoxious about it in any way. He's just very straightforward, and he takes care of business. My brother-in-law, Corwin, killed himself just a few weeks ago. Even though Corwin was raised with biblical principles in mind, he had some really tough things in life. But over the years, I started interacting with him when I was 19 years old and he was about 13. I saw him begin to make a whole series of decisions that led him to be in an entirely, absolutely the opposite direction of biblical principles. And so then over the years, there was things that we did not agree about. And when he would bring it up and when he would push it and when he would talk about it, which was something we never did, we never brought it up, we let him bring it up. When he would bring it up, we would, we would engage. And we would talk with him about it. And he didn't like that at all. But Deb and I covenanted together that we were going to love this guy no matter what. And friends, at times, he did not make it easy. He was a really hard guy to love sometimes. When his marriage broke up with his husband... We were the first or among the very first people that he called. He lived in Vancouver. And he asked, could I come and live with you? We said, sure. And when he was with us, he was with us, I can't remember for how long, for a while. He said this. He said, you know, I don't always agree with you. But I've always known you love me. And friends, I just want to tell you, that's not the strength of Debbie and Scott. No way. If it was just up to me, I would have reacted in a very poor way. No, that's Debbie and Scott saying, need help, Jesus. We can't love this guy. He's very unlovable. He makes life difficult in many ways. We ask for your help. Would you fill us with your spirit? And Jesus, would you be at work in us? Where have you placed yourself and your family if you have one? 
Yeah, the grass may be greener on the other side of the septic tank, but is it oozing poison in your direction? Think about that image. What might you have to sacrifice to be in that place? Is it an appropriate sacrifice? Now, I probably don't have the answer, but I know this. God has the answer. I know this, that you can ask him, and I know that the book is very, very clear. Whatever it is you're involved in, you need to be asking yourself, wherever I live, wherever I work, whatever, can I still ooze the very fragrance of Jesus in that environment? The people that look to you as a person of influence, what are you passing on? 